Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and our topic today is public education. Our guests are Jim Harvey, the superintendent of schools of the Monroe County Community School Corporation, and John Quick, who's the superintendent of schools in the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811, or if you're in Columbus or anywhere else outside of the Bloomington calling area, you can phone 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Hey, before we get started, um, can I take a minute and congratulate one of the uh, MCCSC's partners, the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department. They won a national award on... Wednesday morning, the gold medal award uh, for being the top top parks department uh, in the nation in their um, population size group. So congratulations to them. Absolutely. And part of the reason that was their partnership with MCCSC. Yeah. yeah, great. Congratulations to Mick and to Mary Catherine, the former president of the Parks Board. Yeah. All right. Jim, welcome back. Thank you. And John, welcome to you for the first time. Thank Glad you. to have you. There are a lot of things going on in Public education today, we can go a lot of different directions, but it's probably appropriate to start with what's happening with uh, property taxes in the state, the big property tax issue. So if uh, each of you could sort of um, frame that issue as it affects the public school system, each of your corporations. And Jim, let's start with you. Well, I was actually going to defer to John because I think his situation is slightly (laughs) different than than ours. it's impacted school corporations across the, the, the state actually on a county basis. It depends upon where your county is with regard to, to reassessment. Uh, in Monroe County, um, as everybody knows, at least in, in Monroe County, our property taxes bills were delayed uh, and were due and payable uh, the end of July, third week in July, or, or my recollection was that. So uh, we did have to borrow some money because normally that distribution uh, is made by June 30th. Um, and that is a cost to the taxpayer simply because uh, we have to pay interest on a loan just like everybody else. Um, but uh, that's a microcosm uh, of the bigger problem across the state and it really looks at going back to the Supreme Court case in Indiana several years ago looking at school funding and uh, the relationship between commercial and residential property. Uh, The problem right now across the state tends to be, if I understand it correctly, that a lot of the commercial property was not assessed uh, according at the levels that it it should have been. Therefore, there was a shift to residential property that in many cases was deemed to be disproportionate, had a severe impact in Marion County. Uh, At least we haven't had to give money back. I understand IPS uh, has actually had to give some of their tax money back. So uh, Mm -hmm. the the biggest issue for us, I mean the short term, but the biggest issue is is trying to do any kind of long-range planning. If you're trying to do – we're getting ready in 2009 to go into – a long-range facilities plan uh, first phase, and uh, it makes it difficult to do, particularly when we had advertised the plan predicated on the assumption that we weren't going to raise tax rates. Mm-hmm. John, I know you've got a, a similar but even more serious situation. Uh, we have yet to receive any kind of uh, property tax bills in Bartholomew County to this point. Uh, we're anticipating getting those bills in uh, the end of October, maybe payable by the end of November. So we've been in a, a situation like Jim where we've had to borrow money for uh, cash flow. So uh, this is the most money in tax anticipation warrants, I think, in the history of BCSC. Um, we have put so many things, I think, on hold, and Jim hit on the planning. For example, we had hoped last summer to bring forth a, a, a multi-phase high school addition and renovation project, and we pulled that project because uh, we didn't have bills. We couldn't answer the question to folks about what their property tax bill would exactly be. And we've had t- two stories this week, one early in the week that the assessor said there would be an average of 8 9% higher, and then the auditor yesterday said, no, it's going to be 25 to 30% average higher. Uh, so we don't know. And until folks really get that, we can't answer the question. So uh, we, although we don't control much of what happens there, we get a lot of the pressure. Uh, Three-quarters of your tax bill probably comes to BCSC. In, in, in our, it might vary a little bit whether you live in the city or whether you live out in the county. But we certainly, folks are, are very much, when they look at their bill and they see that, 
uh, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, much of our budget, uh, we have a $100 million budget, and, and probably two-thirds of that budget is, is local dollars in one way or the other. So uh, we don't have another funding mechanism other than property taxes to do some building. So we certainly uh, are anxious to see how that works. We don't think we're going to have the perfect storm like they had in Marion County. We have gone through the inventory tax, and we had a mm-hmm. pretty good assessment. Uh, our our uh, data given to DLGF, although it wasn't – they haven't had it all that long, uh, they didn't kick it back and say you're – your commercial and your uh, home property is, is really askew, and so you need to do this over. So they said we had pretty good data. So we're looking forward to those um, bills, but we're, we're under pressure. I know a lot of folks are looking at this next legislative session to see what might happen with property tax reform. Yeah. I guess the, the one thing I would want to say about this, this whole issue is that, and I know that there's a lot of clamoring across the state and, and maybe in our two counties in particular, uh, to do something about the property taxes. But as a revenue stream, I would be very cautious uh, of going away from property tax. And I know that that there's a lot of Mm -hmm. conversation and concern about that. But when I look at what the General Assembly is considering as options, uh, one of the things that we have to do uh, is is to – and we both alluded to it or, or spoken to it, is this issue of planning. And the options that the, the General Assembly are considering are less predictable, less reliable sources mm-hmm. of, of income. And um, f- you get into a recession, uh, for example, and uh, sales tax sales go down, then your revenue stream goes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I'm really concerned about some of the mm-hmm. conversation that's going on at the state level about doing away for, with property tax totally uh-huh. as a basis for, for school funding. Um, I'm also concerned about what has ha- transpired from the time that the original property tax uh, bills were passed uh, in the in the early 70s, that were designed to shift the burden of the funding of local schools to the state. And since that time, the erosion of it that uh, and and John, our figures are slightly less than than theirs, but. Uh, our, right now, about 60 percent, 61 percent of our general fund revenue comes from, the, from local property taxes and only about 39, 40 percent mm-hmm. from the state. Thirty-five years ago in 1972, it was reversed. This is the, these are the historic ratios that we had prior to, to, to Governor Bowen and now we're back almost where we started. But we have all the controls that came out of that, that, that era. Could you both speak to uh, where your money for building comes from versus your operating funding? Well, the funds for building is is totally a local function. Uh, Now, we have to get approval uh, from different folks along the way, including DLGF and and uh, you know, folks in, at the What's state level, DLGF, uh, Department of Local, Local Government Finance. Okay, thanks. Oh, thank uh-huh. you. So we're used to using these acronyms, <laughs> but I, I agree with Jim that we need uh, property tax. The stability's there, uh, and uh, you know what happens. Folks will say, "Let's do a way of property tax," but the levy or the amount of money mm-hmm. that we need that doesn't change, and there isn't any free lunch. So if you're not going to do property tax, what's the what's the other so- the other source? There has been some relief, I think, in property tax that probably goes unnoticed, and that is uh, the single uh, largest chunk of money in a state budget is for for education. But the next largest chunk of money is actually property tax replacement now. So there have been some things that have happened over the last few years because there's been pressure, and so that property tax replacement is a big part now of what would be the state budget, and and some could argue that that maybe that those dollars should have been earmarked for education rather than so. I know it's a complex issue, and and there's a lot of emotion around it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're not going to solve it, I don't think, in in a one short legislative session. Mm-hmm. But to spe- specifically answer your question. Uh, of the of the funds that we have in the various categories, whether it's transportation or debt service or capital projects, the only one that has any state support to it is the general fund. Mm-hmm. The rest of them now are all based on local uh, local property tax. And the general fund is used for 
Uh, broad category is basically operating expenses in terms of, and in our case, about 90, 85-90% goes for salaries and, and salary-related fringe benefits. So mo- that's where most of your money, money goes. Uh, we've had some bleed over in recent years. Uh, again, with General Assembly approval of uh, moving some costs over into the capital projects fund, specifically in the area of utilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, um, your general fund is, is really your, your main operating fund. The other funds tend to be very, they're almost categorical in the sense that they're very specific and they're, more, they're very tightly controlled. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. All right. 855-0811, 877 and noon at indiana.edu. Our guests today are Jim Harvey, superintendent of schools in Monroe County, Monroe County Community School Corporation, and John Quick, superintendent of the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. I'm struck by you know our, our first 10 minutes of conversation here about um, – both of you, I'm sure, started as teachers. When I know you both served as principals. You had a lot of contact with students. Yet, you know, we opened the program. We mm-hmm. spent a lot of time on probably the number one issue facing you today, which is, you know, financial and how to how to make these mm-hmm. budgets work. There are so many things that superintendents of schools are responsible for. So, you know, we hope to cover many of them today. I want to I want to go to another one that has to do with serving. You know, all the the students in your corporations. I know. Jim, we've had, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to go on the trip to Napa with you to look at New Tech High School. Um, I know that Bartholomew County also has a lot of uh, sort of different ways of trying to teach students. Mm-hmm. So if you could each sort of talk about the importance of, of trying to serve students in a different kind of setting and trying to, to you know, how, how you in 2007 try to reach all students who may learn in different ways. And, and let's just start with John on this one. Okay. Uh, at the high school level, we've we've uh, talked about pathways, having multiple pathways. We have two uh, pretty large, comprehensive high schools, fifteen hundred, and one's uh, a little more than two thousand. So when students walk in the door, they have multiple pathways, and and ways in which we can regroup students also into maybe schools of four hundred or five hundred in that particular pathway, so that there's better ownership. And, you know, our goal is that every student every day has an adult in that building that knows them well and can help advise them. And, and that's awfully important to, to our students. Uh, it, in, in broad uh, terms, you know, you would look at uh, what is a school of one. Uh, each student sh- should have uh, an in- individual plan or, or someone that helps advise them as they progress through that. Uh, we're looking at new tech uh, implementation in the fall of 08. Uh, we're we're looking at this uh, from kindergarten through twelfth grade. Uh, most of the, all the new techs that I'm aware of are high school, but we think this project based learning in a technology rich environment is good for all students. So one of our smaller elementary schools that is uh, high poverty uh, will become a magnet school uh, this fall, and we're trying to figure out how we make all those logistics work. We're also going to take a couple of teams in a middle school. Uh, there that it will be on the same campus as that elementary school and make them a new tech, uh, new tech school as well as looking at then starting the beginning of with 100 high school students and eventually getting to 400 with the new tech. And I know you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. with that process. But, but we need to have many more options for students. We have uh, so many veneers of students uh, in, in our district, uh, whereas our top 10 percent outperform the top 10 percent in the country. We also have 40 percent lunch assistance and 10 percent students with English as second language and 38 languages spoken. And the diversity there and the needs, uh, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So mm-hmm. how do we look at look at this education system differently? Because what we're seeing is that we have to in- increase the engagement. Uh, if students are not engaged, then we feel like that we're, you know, you're winning the battles maybe at this level, but we lost the war because the student is not with us at the end and being a lifelong learner. So those are the big ideas for BCS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jim? Arts are similar. Uh, it's interesting. The semantics that we use or the, how we phrase things, John talks about pathways. We've simply talked about options. Uh, of giving kids uh, choices, uh, as many choices as as we can, which is kind of interesting in terms of, of counterbalance with the state requirements, which continue to increase in, in terms of core 40. Um, we, too, will begin a, a new tech high in, in, the, in the fall. Um, 
and I think we've presented it as as a, 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 a different way for kids to learn. Uh, it it uh, is structured very differently than a traditional high school, um, and and it will impact the, the traditional high schools. It has already impacted, for example, our middle schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started meeting in the spring semester with our middle school principals. Uh, which resulted in a recommendation to our board in June to create a middle school task force this year to look at our middle schools and how our middle schools maybe need to change and be restructured to uh, meet the different kinds of, of, of changes that we're looking at in the high schools. Uh, we also plan to start uh, an early college high school uh, in the fall that will be a school within a school or programs both at North and South, uh, focused primarily on uh, 21st century scholars. Uh, we have not had a good track record historically with uh, actually getting these kids uh, to enroll in college. Uh, in fact, our uh, uh, rate is is very very low in the twelve to fifteen percent range, and that's really unfortunate because this is a terrific program that that's available uh, to those students. Uh, could you, could you explain the program, the 21st Century Scholarship? Well, very, very briefly, it focuses on students that are identified in middle school uh, who are so economically disadvantaged but clearly have from, uh, from standardized tests the academic ability to do uh, higher education. And uh, basically what, what happens is, is that the student uh, elects with the support of their parents to, to, in effect, sign a contract uh, that that says, uh, I will stay in school, I will stay out of trouble, not take drugs, uh, graduate uh, with a certain GPA, and in return, State of Indiana says, we will uh, provide a four-year scholarship to a state school. And so you're having people not take you up on that offer? Only only 12 to 15 percent of the some 400-plus students that we have in our two high schools actually end up enrolling in college. And uh, you know, as we talk about, I mean, Tom Friedman's book's now about two years old, but if we continue to have that conversation about what he says will be the next great revolution in American education, and that is, you know, students going to, to into higher education, uh, we have to change that, that percentage. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the number of children or families that would be affected if we simply doubled the number. Uh, or what if it became similar to what our normal student population looks like, which I don't know what Columbus's numbers look like, but in our high schools, we're looking at, let's say, 70 percent or in that neighborhood, plus or minus 5 percent. So uh, if you had 70 percent of those kids going to college, what an enormous impact it would have on them, their families, and quite frankly, you know, on our community in terms of what the kind of contributions they would make to our society. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I, I wanted to, to follow up on the early college because you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, New Tech, New Tech High School, and, and John, what you said, um, project-based learning in a technology-rich environment. Um, I think that, uh, and Jim, we've had this conversation. That I think people are starting to understand what New Technology High School is, um, which is not about a bunch of people learning about technology. Right. I mean, it's a different way of sure. learning things. So, uh, but early college, I'm not as familiar with that. So, what would that be? Well, there are a variety of early college models, and, and the one that, that we're focused on is, is trying to – again, we focused on this particular population. Mm-hmm. Other early college models don't necessarily focus on the same group of students that we did. We simply looked at, at our uh, data with regard to our students and realized that we had a significant target population here that, that was not being uh, responsive to, to a, a, what we saw as a, as a very – uh, generous uh, opportunity as far as the state's concerned, and what can we do to help that? So uh, we actually, again, will be identifying students in middle school, uh, putting together a prescribed curriculum that would start with them as freshmen, uh, providing a lot of additional support uh, in, in two ways. One, academic support, but also uh, what I would call cultural support. Of, of I'm reminded of one of the scenes in the movie Breaking Away where the father takes his son over here on campus and they're standing outside the library. And, uh, and basically this was the father's way of trying to encourage his son to consider coming to IU. But I always was struck by that scene in terms of the dichotomy that's there that this was not part of the horizon for that father, but he was trying to communicate to his son that this was something that he ought to consider. And it was telling that that scene was filmed at night. 
that the father wasn't going to be seen on campus during the day with his son. Uh, and I think some of our families, quite frankly, feel that way about whether whether it's IU or Ball State or Ivy Tech. Uh, and so we're planning a number of cultural activities for the parents. And in fact, it, the early college program will require uh, an agreement to be signed by the part of the parents that they will attend some of these activities um, on the campus to to help them understand that this is something that's achievable and doable on the part of their family, on the part of their their son or daughter. John, we we have agreements with uh, IUPUC uh, at the campus at Columbus and Ivy Tech, Vincennes, Purdue School of Technology. And as a matter of fact, as a single site now, more of our students choose to go to what we call the airport campus there in Columbus than, than go to what land-grant colleges now. And part of it's economics and part of it is these first generation, about you know, uh, 70, 80 percent of those students that might be first generation uh, students. And we think that's important because we battle what Jim does with 21st century scholars that folks don't know. Sometimes the students don't know what they don't know because mm-hmm. they haven't had that modeling in there. But it will be our expectation, for example, uh, in many of our uh, pathways that you have 12 to 24 uh, hours of college credit when you graduate. Uh, matter of fact, we've had a high school interdisciplinary team of about 100 to 120 students for some years now. And those uh, teachers that work in that unit, in that group of school within a school, are now a- adjunct faculty uh, and then those students will have an associate degree in a few years. They will graduate high school with an associate degree. Now, the economics of that plus the head start and the, the expectation that, that students go on to higher ed is, is a real important mindset getting and touching those students early on where they, they feel like they're connected to higher ed. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811. and the email address is noon at indiana.edu. All right. Well, you'll be happy to know our first question is from Columbus. All right. Uh, It begins, uh, what new ways are you planning to challenge high-performing and or gifted children at all levels in the district, but especially at the elementary level? Right now, it is my experience that they are underserved and can become unengaged. Okay. Uh, We do have uh, what we call academic challenge program that, that uh, starts in fourth grade, mm-hmm. uh, on which those students uh, are uh, uh, are identified, and then we we do those programs at two at two cluster sites. Uh, what we're looking at is uh, other ways of reaching all of students. Universal design for learning is 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 a big part of what we're doing now, and it was based on. Um, the architectural concept or the Americans Disability Act that says all buildings should be accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the same way, all curriculum should be accessible. And when we look at this school of one idea, uh, it's, it's real important to, to challenge uh, those students. I think technology is one of the ways that we can, we can do that. Uh, we, and I, I probably, the, the reader probably sounds like someone who sometimes their child may be frustrated because they seems like there's artificial ceilings on kids. And I think that's an injustice too. So uh, we're looking at, uh, in addition to those programs, there's a committee, our, our academic challenge uh, committee uh, is, is looking at other alternatives, but uh, we certainly want to serve students on uh, across the broad spe- spectrum. And, and that's what we have in Columbus is so many different veneers mm-hmm. and, and, and serving uh, challenges serving those students at, at all of those level and making sure that we look at the, the students as a population and moving everyone across that continuum. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Jim, any uh, comments about MCCSC and, and elementary sort of enrichment? Yeah. Um, our situation probably similar to, to Columbus's but a little different. Um, this year, again, the General Assembly passed a, a new uh, law that um, basically changes the definition of what are now referred to as high-ability students. Um, and that, we, Did that used to be gifted? Yes. Okay. Okay. And we, have, too, have a broad-based planning committee, but uh, the, the redefinition of this actually broadens out the definition of who qualifies. Uh, historically, in our district, at least at the elementary level, it's been a fairly narrow uh, a definition fairly strict, and I think the legislation's changing that. And so during the course of this school year, we're looking at what that impact would be. We're looking, I think, at uh, again, we've had a pullout program for more than 20 years uh, focusing on the humanities, and it 
has attracted a single section uh, of students, uh, again, in each grade level, four, five, and six. Uh, I, the conversations that I've had with the Broad-Based Planning Committee have been about uh, the areas that we're not necessarily serving. If you're looking at um, the broad spectrum of giftedness of, of how children might excel, uh, we've, we've tended, for example, to focus on academic pursuits rather than some others uh, – you may have students that are challenged or uh, uh, gifted or uh, extraordinary in the arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've not done a real good job, at least recently, uh, in that area. We also have not really served kinetically uh, children that are gifted in that respect. Uh, we're, and currently, we don't have any focus program in the sciences or mathematics. And so we've got some work to do in that. And I think that this is paralleling to some extent what we're looking at in the conversation about middle schools. That we've also created a, a task force this year to look at what do we need to be doing better for our high ability kids. And in some instances, the, the, the idea that, that uh, John mentioned about uh, programs in each school, we're looking at uh, some considerations, some ideas about ungraded programs in each school, at least in the intermediate grades, uh, that would um, allow students to work at their own pace, have more flexibility than maybe they would have in the traditional structure. So um, this is an area where, quite frankly, uh, there's, a, there's a real desire on the part of parents to keep their children in their home elementary school, their neighborhood school. And so it's, it's hard sometimes to attract or involve them in cluster programs or, or uh, those kinds of things. They tend to do that more readily in the middle schools and high schools. Um, but it, it, it's a concern for us uh, it, it, that we don't know that we've served our elementary children as well as, as we should have. Our guests could. today are Jim Harvey, superintendent of schools of the Monroe County Community School Corporation, and John Quick, superintendent of the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We'll get to an email as soon as we get back from a break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. Speak Your Mind is WFIU's two-minute commentary, allowing you to air your thoughts about current global or local issues. To submit your idea or for a set of guidelines, you may call 855-1357 or visit WFIU.org. Speak Your Mind is WFIU's Letters to the Editor commentary show. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guests today, Jim Harvey and John Quick. Jim is superintendent of the Monroe County Community School Corporation, and John is superintendent of the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. That's 285-9348. Or send your email to noon at indiana.edu, as uh, one of our listeners has done. They have indeed. And this one is uh, directed to you, Jim. Your service to the children of our county is appreciated. Do you consider IDEA an underfunded mandate? And you're going to have to tell us what IDEA is. IDEA is the federal legislation pertaining, basically the federal rules with regard to uh, special education. Okay. Um, And there are several questions, so I'm going to let you answer these one at a time if you don't mind. I think it might be simpler. Okay. All right. The first one is, do you consider that to be underfunded? It generally has been. Okay. Uh, How much money has been given to Indiana schools from the federal government for IDEA? Um, (laughs) I don't know that I can answer that. Okay. Do you know Uh, how much has been given to MCCSC? I don't specifically 
uh, interns right. have broken down. Our director of special ed clearly would know, but John, you might. Well, I can make a couple of general comments. First of all, uh, education is, is pretty much a local and state function. So in any given year, uh, the amount of federal dollars, including Title I dollars and that, is certainly less than 10 percent of our budget. Uh, it, we spend about $9 million uh, in our, our district serving 1,600 students, and we're the local educational agency. So we work with six school corporations and some students that might be mm. low incident. But the, the problem we have just immediately, and I probably is what the reader was going after, we were anticipating a 5% increase in funding for this year. And matter of fact, that that's what the budget says at the federal level. In fact, we got 5% less dollars. So that was a $600,000 shortfall. And so when you contact folks and say, you know, how could this be? Because we planned on this, and yet we have a $600,000 shortfall. Uh, and some of that money, I think, actually went in the war efforts. And so... Uh, so those students who need the most help sometimes are underfunded. Uh, we d- uh, students with special needs, uh, there is a, in, in the formula instead of counting as 1.0, there w- might be a factor added factor to that, but that doesn't fill the gap between what is the service that we need. So. The answer to the question is yes, woefully underfunded. Okay, and this continues. Are the federal funds specifically marked for special ed or does it go into the general fund? It's it's specific uh, in terms of the dollars that come our way. We don't have the luxury of – in other words, you're not going to have dollars that flow our way uh, for students with special needs and then that money go into general fund. That's not the way – that it okay. would work for us. And then um, does MCCFSC have sufficient funds to meet the needs of our special education population? Um, I think the answer to that generally is going to be no. I mean, it's a combination of, of, of state funds, uh, local funds, and federal funds. But again, you're dealing with a finite amount. Uh, and uh, there is a dissonance there, quite frankly, between us and, and a lot of the families uh, with uh, special needs children that um, we can't provide all the services that they would like to have. And sometimes there's a difference, obviously, in a disagreement with regard to what is appropriate and what's optimal. And it's rare um, that we provide optimal services. It's just not within the financial reach of our ability to do. Uh, as I look at how education has changed, uh, this is probably the most significant area in terms of the children that we have in schools today that we did not have a generation ago. Uh, that, um, um, And I'm not saying that we don't want them and we shouldn't have them. I'm just simply saying that in terms of the resources, that in many instances we're being asked to provide services that are very difficult for us to do. And there are some real gray areas in terms of uh, education function and, quite frankly, what I consider sometimes to be mental health functions, what I consider to be medical functions, uh, that services that we're providing and required to provide, uh, and and it makes that our competition, for example, for employees is not with Bartholomew County Community Schools, it's with uh, Bloomington Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, that when we're trying to hire occupational therapists or physical therapists or or speech-language pathologists, and many times that we're not competing with other school corporations, it's, other, it's medical institutions. And I know they have their funding problems as well, but um, uh, it, that part is very different from what some people will remember. This is what it was like when I went to school, um, the delivery of special needs services. It's frustrating for parents uh, in, in many instances, and it's, it's a source of frustration mm-hmm. for us as, as well. Um, but I think that... Um, by and large, we do a, a good job, but um, we don't provide all the services that a lot of these families would, would like to have. I want to read the last part of this question. It's more of a comment, but I think it's important that we, we uh, express this. It says, all questions are obviously related that we just asked, but the last is the most important to me. I have a child with special needs in this county. I provide volunteer occupational therapy therv- service to him and many others in his schools because I perceive that we have a short of staff and funds. So, yes, echoing certainly your comments on yeah. that. Thank you. All right. Um, let's talk about, about student performance and achievement and, 
and also as, uh, the assessment of, of how well students are doing. Uh, no Child Left Behind has been, you know, in effect for how many years now? Five? Five. Five years. Um, and I think it's up for reauthorization uh, perhaps this year. But what's been the impact of No Child Left Behind? What would you hope – what changes would you like to see in terms of, of how um, – our government agencies uh, want the schools to evaluate how well students are doing. <laughs> Jim? Oh, John. <laughs> oh, I, I'm more we schedule than, another show for this, <laughs> gentlemen? More than willing to let John go first. Well, there are some, just some real incongruities. Uh, one of the things that I read this morning about the reauthorization was a, a desire on the part of the federal government to uh, – increase the requirements for what they call highly qualified teachers. And uh, uh, again, you don't have any quarrel with that, uh, except that, you know, it puts pressure on you in terms of the recruitment. It puts pressure on us in terms of what we, we pay in terms of salaries. And then we have some, some peculiar kinds of things. Our state uh, began uh, a mentor program, an intern mentor program to help beginning teachers uh, some 20 years ago. And the General Assembly this year chose not to fund a stipend for the, the mentors. Uh, that they've said, you know, we've historically for more than 20 years paid a, uh, a mentor, a, uh, a veteran teacher who would help a beginning teacher to get off on the right foot and to learn some of those things now in the real world that maybe they didn't learn when they were student teaching or a methods class. And the stipend was not a, a very large one. It was $600. But if you have 80 people, uh, as we do, and uh, – there historically has been an expectation that you would pay them uh, a stipend, and the state says, well, um, we don't think we can afford it, uh, and you get zero, uh, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh, I mean, you say, yes, you, your budget's $90 million. That's true, all funds combined. But even, I mean, mm-hmm. this sounds funny. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean it in a demeaning way, but $48,000 is still a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that boy, that's just a little bit about the no child left behind. I guess I would say generally that I have no quarrel with assessment. I have really no quarrel with the, the standards uh, that we're asking uh, our kids to meet because I think by and large our kids are doing pretty well. Uh, what I'm concerned about, quite frankly, in, in is the, the lack of any common sense, uh, flexibility in the application of some of the standards. Uh, and quite frankly, I, I don't want that, that flexibility to be here. It could be in Indianapolis. Uh, don't let me, don't let our school board have that flexibility. But we have a situation which is well known in Bloomington with, with Fairview that uh, is a school that made academic performance. They failed, are a failing school. Uh, in one subcategory, special education attendance, and there's a very good explanation for it, but there's nobody to whom the ex- explanation can be given or anybody that's, quite frankly, willing and interested in listening to it. Uh, so that part of the unreasonableness doesn't make a, a lot of sense. So wait a minute. Let's back up on that just a second. So it's it's failing in one subcategory, and yeah. so therefore – it is considered to be a failing school. They did not make AYP. They did not make the, the prescribed standard in every category in terms of the general school population or in terms of all of the subcategories. You have to make all of them. The general school population in terms of a school attendance rate or in the case of the high school's graduation rates, uh, you have to meet the performance criteria. Um, in, but you also have to meet the attendance, all of these in the subcategories. Uh, subcategories are free and reduced, um, uh, e- limited English proficiency, and special ed. And this school qualified in every one of the broad categories, every one of the subcategories, with the exception of special ed attendance. Mm-hmm. And even that was, is related to a particular subgroup of students within that population. And so it's just there's part of that 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 part I would like to see some – um, common sense applied to the standards. The other last piece, and then I know John wants to weigh in on this, is the fact that um, I really feel like that when you look at the sanctions that are applied to a school, why do we go to, to um, choice as the very first option or sanction on a school? 
because uh, it has really worked to the detriment of Fairview. When our board redistricted, we we had sixty uh, percent free and reduced in that sc- in that school, um, but because of choice, the children who and families who have elected to leave, by and large, are not families that are free and reduced lunch, nor children who failed I-STEP. So all it has done has um, increased the density, the concentration in that school, mm-hmm. made it more difficult for it to, to succeed, which it's done. Uh, that It seems to me that choice could clearly be one of the options or sanctions that you might want to levy, but why is it the first? And, mm-hmm. it, and it's, it makes, for example, uh, redistricting really not, not a real possibility. It also yeah. teaches our children if things aren't going well, you abandon ship. Well, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I believe in accountability. I believe that no child left behind is uh, at least that term is going to be with us forever. I'm pretty sure, and, and I think mm-hmm. the intent was good. I think there's some inconsistencies, and there's also this raising the bar toward perfection, in which eventually almost everyone will fail, uh, and that's really tough for. Uh, for us to work with faculty and staff. Let me give you two examples of the inconsistency just within my district. Two two examples. I have an elementary school of 20-some percent lunch assistants, small elementary, very supportive parents, mostly rural. They were a four-star school. Um, uh, That means that they score in the top 25 percent in attendance, I-STEP, Math, I step language, I step kind of attendance, all of that, and that get if you do all those things, then you're in the top ten percent of of all schools in the state. They failed adequate yearly progress and no child left behind because they passed fourteen out of fifteen cells. The cell that they didn't pass was the segment of students with special needs that needed to to increase their percentage of improvement by x amount, so they were failed. I have another school that has 80% lunch assistance um, has uh, about 90% mobility. That means if they have 400 uh, kids in the school, probably 375 will move in and out in the course of a year. In the course of one year. In the course of one year. We, we have, uh, they have uh, 22% of their students with, with, uh, with special needs. Um, they also passed 14 out of 15 cells. <laughs> Uh, but they failed the same sale, and but they've done it over a course of years now, and so that they're in a different classifications. Uh, so Indiana already had an accountability system called Public Law 221 before this came in, and so we're caught up in multiple accountability systems where a school could maybe pass on one and not on on the other, and they don't even look at the same group of kids. And, and what, what is unfair sometimes is you want to look at an individual student or a group of cohort students. The school that I mentioned that was high poverty, if you stay with us for six years, you've got a 90% chance of passing that test. But, and, and so do, you know, do the teachers make a difference? Do we make a difference with students? Absolutely. Uh, but there, there are some other factors that are, that are inconsistent. So uh, it, it is uh, in some ways – uh, you know, a, kind of a PR nightmare for a superintendent. Quite frankly, I spoke to a lot of community groups, and they would say, "How in Columbus, Indiana, could you have a school that's that's failing or might be on probation?" You know, because they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Because if you and I took a test and we passed fourteen out of fifteen, we'd probably say, "You know, we want to we want to pass it all, and we're going to work on that one." And we've identified. And, and that's a positive thing uh, in terms of segmenting the data and looking at, at groups of students and make sure that we have strategies to address those problems. But on the other hand, would you say to those teachers, you're a failing school, whereas you might have another school in which, you know, maybe the effort is not quite as intense, but they happen to be a little more lucky on the student that's walking through the door. Well, not only a PR nightmare, but a, a morale uh, issue, I would think, if you've got people doing the uh-huh. best they can and, and then they get painted right. with a... a yeah. Absolutely. And we have, uh, you know, almost 10% of our students, as I mentioned earlier, are, are English as second language. Now, those students will take the math portion and the science portion. They might opt out of the language portion if they haven't been with us for a period of time. And they can opt not to take the test, but it's a, but it's a catch-22. If you don't take the test, then you fail. 
<laughs> so you can opt not to take the test, but we're going to count it against you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so there are some things where you know, you know, you're just trying to serve kids, and you're trying to, but, but you know, we're sitting here talking about it, and it's confusing yeah. to, to most anyone, while less trying to help with the folks. So, um, very similar kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, limited English proficiency is again a, another one where you you have this whipsaw in terms of funding. Uh, this year our state funding went up and the federal funding went down almost the, the commensurate amount. So the budget stayed the same. It just the sources uh, shifted. Mm-hmm. Yet our number of students continues to to rise. Um, I guess I would go back to, to, to what I had said earlier with regard to the reauthorization is that I would – I really wish somebody would just use some common sense with some of this, that it doesn't serve us uh, and I think to end up with a significant number of our schools uh, identified as failing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that uh, – we, we anticipate the same kinds of, of scenario that, that, that John mentioned, not this year, but next year when the standards go up, we anticipate that – and I've said this to our board, we won't have one fair view. We will have at least probably four uh, and, and could be more in terms of schools that will under the No Child Left Behind legislation be labeled as failing schools. And uh, in many ways, just as we've been somewhat powerless to, to, to change the dynamic as far as Fairview is concerned, we will be just as powerless to change some of the, the, the dynamics uh, as far as some of the other schools are concerned. Um, that may not be real popular to say that, but I really I, I think that's out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I don't find uh, when I when I read what the conversation and the, the discussion in Congress is, I'm not optimistic that we're going to see significant changes in in the bill or in the law when it it is reauthorized. Um, I'm just sorry, I I don't see it. Okay, we have a phone call and an email, so let's go to Jim on the phone. Jim, hey Bob, hey Jim, uh, Catherine, and uh, okay Jim Harvey. Uh, in fifty seven fifty eight, when I came out of Cleveland with my master's, I uh, worked for Purdue for a year, and I tested uh, hearing according to the laws uh, from border to border in Indiana. And in Brown County, I did many schools that don't exist anymore. And it was like Little House on the Prairie all over again. And uh, I would urge you to uh, keep the idea of small schools even within a school, and also uh, to uh, make sure the uh, student get the chance to visualize himself as a, uh, a college student. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, Jim. Thanks a lot for the call. Here's an email that came in. It's really not a question, a comment. It says, a note about funding for IDEA, GT, and all other programs. Lack of adequate funding is not about you. Our schools are greatly underfunded and are likely never to be properly funded. If you want additional funds for your programs, go to the polls and vote for folks who will fund them. That is, if you can find any candidate who will admit to being in favor of full funding for any government program. Well, that... that takes me back to the, the idea of No Child Left Behind. And what kinds of things can you two do as superintendent or your association do in terms of lobbying with Barron Hill or with uh, you know, our senators um, to try to make the kind of changes you think are necessary? Well, in the short run, I'm not optimistic. Mm-hmm. I believe that those um, uh, mechanisms and, uh, and the increase in the standards uh, will get to us um, before – we, we take any action because I'm looking at the looking at the dates and looking at the political uh, climate and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So they're going to get here before. So a- again, we will be fixing this after the fact. I think once uh, once we get there. So I'm not optimistic. I think folks are, have a better understanding. I mean, I, I respect Barron and, and our local folks, and they they have been helpful to the schools, and and we have a good relationship with them. Uh, but uh, I'm not in, – in the long run, I think folks will, will come around. But in the short term, I think we're going to be taking some lumps. Yeah. Well, I think too that um, this is a, obviously a federal law and the circumstances in education in Bloomington or Columbus are drastically different than they are in Indianapolis or Detroit or, or New York City. And it doesn't mean that 
you know, there ought to be, in a sense, different standards or different rules for us as opposed to them. But we really are talking about, in, in some of those scenarios, apples and oranges. And I really applaud what Gene White and, quite frankly, the mayor have done in Indianapolis in trying to create a better educational environment for, uh, for the students that, that live in, in Indianapolis. They're dealing, though, with a different set of problems than, than we are, um, or at least simply in, in, um, in, in a greater number than, than we are. Uh, we still have them, but we don't have uh, them to the extent that, that they do. We don't have much time left, but I'd just like to ask each of you, if you had one wish that you could grant for your school system, what, what wish would that be? You've puzzled them. Well, that uh, that every student that walked in the door felt that they were connected and, and felt some ownership for their learning. Okay. I, um, I would second that. I think that um, I want each student to, to know that we really care, that we care about them as, as human beings, as people first, as students second. Um, we want them to succeed. I want, quite frankly, and this is more than one wish, it isn't. But <laughs> I want our our society to recognize that this is probably the most significant investment that they can make, and that um, uh, I hope that they would spend uh, what they need to to make sure that kids have the the, the choices and the chances that 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 we all hope for. Okay, and we are uh, out of time with that. I want to thank uh, Jim Harvey. Jim, I hope you'll come back again. Hope you thank you, Bob. And John, welcome for the first time. I hope you'll come All back, right. too. Anytime. All right. These conversations about what's going on in the public schools is uh, incredibly important, mm. and we enjoy having Helpful. them. Helpful. I want to thank Mary Catherine for being here today. My and pleasure. And for producer Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.